third of the fourth week of Graceful Citizenship, this class subtitled Politics Matter. And um, if you guys originally saw the layout of the class, um, as we go into this, what we're able to get to and not able to get to, and a little bit of where I am perceiving the class is changing a little bit of the topic. So tonight, here's what we're going to specifically look at. We're going to do what we did in really short form, like less than five minutes last week because we had an interview, we're going to do in detail today of a biblical examination of government. What does the Bible really say about government and the point of it? And in the midst of that, we're going to expose, I think, what are some faulty ways of thinking regarding this that many Christians have. Then I want to get into a little bit of Q&A um, on the missus. So what are thoughts that you have about that idea? What are big questions that still you rest, you're wrestling with? So Q&A off of what we've talked about. So this is going to have more of a, a strong teaching component to it, this front end. And then the second half of our night, we're going to talk about, and I felt like this was pretty fitting, guidelines to voting. So we're two weeks out. Um, what are some ways that Christians should really be thinking, how we should be thinking about voting? But rather than me just giving that to you, I want to start by just asking the question that we're going to all communicate publicly together. What's guiding you? Like, how are you thinking about these issues? Whatever you're deciding to do um, in the midst of this, I'd love for you to bring a little bit of a defense uh, to what's guiding you and how you would vote and why you're going to vote or if you're going to vote. I'd love to just hear that. Um, remember what we started with. I'm going to do a little brief uh, review here even before we get into this is we have to begin be able to dialogue. A public commons that government oversees, we all live in this public commons, has to, to, to function in a healthy manner, has to have dialogue that is civil. So it has to have dialogue. One, you need to be willing to talk. Two, it needs to be civil, and it needs to have opportunities to have conviction to it. So what I'm going to say on the starting end of this kind of conversation is don't be offended if somebody challenges you, and if you challenge somebody or have questions about something, um, or you're talking about your big passionate button, do it with grace and civility and humility in the midst of that. So I want to have a conversation also in the midst of that questions you have. You may talk and go, hey, here are questions I have about voting and things that I'm still really unresolved about. And then I'll end the night um, giving seven or so guidelines that I think will help us be better. So let me do uh, a little review before we get into this of kind of where we've been thus far. Hopefully you guys can remember those two big ideas tonight. Big biblical exam review, biblical examination, and guidelines for voting are the three big ideas. So um, let me start uh, by a couple things we've said in the preceding two weeks. One is that the purpose of this class is not to develop mastery. It's to develop discernment. Okay, so discernment over mastery because we only have four weeks I don't necessarily think I'm the most suited one to develop mastery in you, um, but I think uh, coming from a biblical perspective and as a pastor, I can help um, with discernment and maybe exposing what I see as maybe some biblical misleadings in the way uh, Christians sometimes perceive government. So that discernment over mastery, helping you think, which is essential to being one a Christian. And we said at the very beginning of the first week is that one of the biggest problems with our culture at large, which is then exposed in the political arena and as we engage in the political process, is 
how, mu- how dumbed down our culture has become in the sense of somebody, you, many people coming to this class, I'll just use this as an example, I'm not saying it's any of you, but many people in our culture would come to a class like this, even if they're Christians, and say, just tell me who to vote for. Right? Like, just tell me what it is. I don't think one that's Christian and or I don't think that's part of being a good citizen. It, it necessitates thinking. Um, we need to get beyond bumper sticker slogans and attack ads and the ability to really think through issues of what is best for the public arena. So thinking is absolutely mandated, which means, which is why I feel such a burden to help at least be a little bit of the process to cultivate discernment. And then the other one is um, character, the development of character over content, and content may not be the best word, but just a development of character of a lot of what we see uh, today in the world is not, doesn't have the utmost character to it. So, and then the last thing is we said that the, the, the role of the church really is the church is the place where civil, convicted civility, civil dialogue, or the role of the public good is kind of the, the church is the space for that to happen on many levels. One is that you have people from all domains of society, multiple generations, a community that fundamentally exists for the good of the public arena. It's been said about the church that it's the only organization on earth that exists for its non-members, meaning the reason the church still exists in the world is that biblically you see that we're a so that people so that the world may know so we are called to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, declaring the praises of the God. This is in First Peter that we're studying right now at Redemption. That's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That we are meant to be this counterculture, showing the world this is what it looks like to live under the lordship of Jesus. And so in the midst of that, this should be the space of character, of civil discussion, of place where we can really come together to seek the welfare of the public comments. So the, as we started week one, we talked about political gridlock. Why is there so much um, political gridlock? And we said there are many reasons for this, but two big ones. We felt fundamentally the first one is a lack of civility. And what we contrasted with that is what we're after is what we called convicted civility. Now, let me just briefly mention this because it gets brought up over and over again is that many ideologues or idealistic people will say things like, if we could just do this, right? And you would say, yeah, that's true. But the reality is we live in a pluralistic country of people with multiple viewpoints that we have to figure out a way to live in harmony and to live in this public commons in the midst of a pluralistic society, that's reality in a principled way. So we need to live out principled pluralism where people can have their convictions and yet function in a civil way. That, that we do live amongst each other. That's a statement of fact. Like unless you're ready to have one viewpoint dominate and just export everybody else and have everybody that agrees. But the, the problem with that is you can't even do that in your own family let alone an entire public commons, right? You can't get everybody to agree in your own family, let alone in an entire public commons. So how then do you live in a public commons? And we said one of the ways is with civility where we're still upholding conviction. 
Most of the time when people pursue this, they split it. So you either have the civil people going, can't we all just get along and none of this really matters. We all kind of believe the same thing. When you're going, no, in reality, we don't all believe the same thing. Or you have the people who go, we really believe differently and they're not civil. So at the end of the debate the other night, um, Ann Coulter, how many of you guys are familiar with Ann Coulter? Okay, she sends a text message out um, that says, uh, Something to the extent of, gosh, I, I, I want to find it because this epitomizes exactly what we were talking about. Did anybody see the text message that she sent out? I said text message, the tweet that she sent out. Yeah, Ann Coulter. Ann, 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 Ann Coulter texted me. Yeah, Ann Rachel Maddow. I follow both of them. Um, basically, she makes some statement about how. Romney didn't give in to, or she's glad he did such and such, and she says, to the retard. <laughs> that's what she says in the tweet, speaking of Obama, to the retard. And I thought, that's civil. Like, like that's, that's a really interesting statement. And I just looked at that and went, this is everything that we're talking about when we say, when you don't have a public commons that can even be civil with each other, how do you not have gridlock? Right? And so we've used the example of the stories that people are telling consistently about in Congress, how it used to be that we would disagree vehemently even on policy and go out afterwards and have a beer. But now people defame each other's character to such a level, and that's part of the game now in the attack ads, that how do I sit down and even have a beer with somebody that so radically goes after, that calls me a retard? Right? Like, I can't even have civility to figure out a public commons in that kind of arena. So we said one of the reasons for the political gridlock is the lack of civility. We as Christians want to promote and champion convicted civility. Then the second one, um, I'm going to use this phrase that's an overused phrase and then explain it. Um, many of you have heard this, but it's worth hearing again if you've been here for two weeks, is just the overemphasis on individualism. The illustration we keep using that I think speaks volumes is in the first, this sounds like I'm attacking the Republicans a lot here, but I don't, we'll get to the other side here in a minute, but at the end of uh, the Republican National Convention, they charted that Mitt Romney said, you deserve 60 times in his speech. You deserve, you deserve, you deserve. I said in the midst of that, um, my father-in-law called me and said, you know what's interesting? My father-in-law, you guys, some of you guys know who he is, so and I don't think it was a big secret, it's Tom Schrader, I don't think it was a big secret on that first night that he leans conservative in his viewpoints. Um, and, and he's not very shy about communicating those things, but he said what's fascinating in this is, is John Kennedy's speech that made him famous of ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country would not even sell in today's culture. It wouldn't sell. Would they give us what we want, right? They, they're doing market research, so they know we want to hear you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. Now, if you're talking about how public governance happens of a public commons, and you have, in Tom Schrader's words, 400 million, that's about the number of the people in the United States, 400 million special interest groups. Everybody's their own special interest group, which want, wants what they want. You don't have a community. You have a collection of individuals. Well, that reality of that individualism, everybody looking out for themselves with no vision, and I would argue with not even, don't even understand what a, public, a, a political community is or a public commons is, and two, may have lost even a lot of the ability to even think with that type of imagination. 
you know, that imagination of we are a community in this fundamentally together is that that creates a whole lot of political gridlock. Then last week, um, we talked in the midst of this basically under the idea that politics matters um, to God because God cares about people. And when you have, and we tried to define three fundamental terms, so what a political community is, what government is, and what citizenship is. So in basic form, so you understand this, the polis, when we talk about politics, right, that word comes from polis or Latin phrase civitas, the civic arena is a public, now when you think of public, you have to think multiple people. There are multiple people living in an environment. The question is, in the midst of that, the question of how do these people live together in the same arena, in this polis, in this public space, therefore we need leadership in the midst of that to govern the pol that's government then all the people in that are citizens. So the political community, it was said to me really well last week, doesn't necessarily sit above this, but somewhat sits in the middle because it's made, the political community is made up of citizens and government. And the governors, if you will, governors, people participating in government, are citizens themselves. And we're all trying to figure out how do we live in this public space together. So being a good citizen is one who participates justly or righteously in the public commons. And I would argue, and it necessitates participation in the public because we care. Now, you'll see this in a minute from a biblical argument is to say, I believe we have an obligation as Christians and a opportunity or privilege to participate in this public space because we have to live out the ideal of love your neighbor as yourself. And no matter what, if you're living in a public community and hundreds of people surround me every single day, how we develop roads is a means to loving our neighbor as ourself. We're gonna break this out even more today with the biblical idea. But that led us to this idea last week that politics matter. And in the interview we saw from Tom Parker, who um, did a lot of his PhD work in the prophets, that the prophets were constantly speaking to the powers, the governors, if you will, in calling them unto righteousness, which I would say the reason that's there biblically, and even you see it with Jesus, speaking about that is what we'll see today is that government is appointed by God as an authority structure for the good of the public commons. So a means to us loving our neighbor as ourself does get into the systems and the structures of leadership and governance in which we live in a public commons or a public community. So that's review up to this point. We're going to get into Bible. Anybody have any questions, just clarification questions? Not if, if there's some challenge, that's fine, but more just clarification. Do you understand what I'm saying in regards to that? I want to say this too. Uh, go ahead, Frank. I would just, to compliment everything that you're saying, I would encourage people if they haven't picked up the book to get the book. The yes, so there's a book that we're reading right now called Uncommon Decency. Um, there's a few copies on the back. Uh, that you need to pay. It's, it's a great book, um, especially in this whole line of civility and conversation and all of that. So that's absolutely true. We, I want to say this too. Those three phrases that we dealt with last week of political community, government, and citizenship, we took time to define. The reason being, and this gets into a, more of the political gridlock, is if we no longer have categories, or maybe even, I would argue, an imagination for that, 
you can imagine, if we don't even have an imagination or a category for a public community, how politics is really hard to figure out, right? Like, you're basically going, I don't understand politics because I don't know what the policies, right? Like, how do you understand politics? Or how do you determine good, just public policy that's the nature of public is for the common good? If I no longer have a, a category for the common good and only for my individual good, that's a problem. If I don't view myself fundamentally as a citizen, which the word itself means I am a participator in the midst of something much bigger than myself, if my whole world just revolves around me, or I don't even have a category to understand that, that's a problem, right? And then if I don't understand how these two relate, government, you know, that we need leadership, and, and this is where I'd say on government, just if there's any um, anarchists out there uh, or people that believe in no government, I would just submit the question, are people um, self focused, seeking their own best interest, left ultimately entirely up to themselves, 350 to 400 million of them, does that end well with no governance? Like everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. Like is that, in the end, does that, does that end well? Right? Like does a family where there's no parental guidance, like leadership structures are given by God. So that's why we spent the time uh, to structure that last week. So any questions, clarifications, anything like that? It's all uh, hopefully a, a little bit longer than just brief build up to what I want to deal with tonight on biblical, a look biblically at government. Thoughts, clarifiers, nothing. All right, guys, I want to pray and then um, we're going to get into this. I'm not praying because this is going to be a sermon, but I just want to pray that God would open our eyes to some of this stuff. So, Father, we love you and uh, just ask in the midst of uh, what is, there's a lot of gridlock in the midst of our, of our political process and a lot of rhetoric that makes things really confusing. We thank you that your word is truth. And God, that you tell us that those who seek the truth and know the truth, that they will be set free. I pray that you might set us free tonight. I pray that discernment would be cultivated I have no sense that any, in any of our teaching or any of our conversation that we are going to be masters at this understanding. But my God, I do believe that you could bring some clarity, and so I pray that you do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, here's a basic argument that I'll start with, is that I, I fundamentally believe government is given for the pursuit of public. You guys all know what public means, justice. And justice in the Bible is the doing right to God's created order. That you govern justly. I believe government is given to administer public justice. So there's a very interesting uh, section in Job chapter 29 when Job is looking back on kind of the good days. You know the book of Job as he's going through a tremendous amount of suffering. And he then comes into... Uh, Job chapter 29, and he's looking back on his days, and he starts speaking about his days when he was governing, when he was a, an elder of a city. He's very much speaking uh, governing-wise, and he's giving a little bit of defense before God in this um, moment, but he's speaking about his righteousness, and he says this. Um, 
let me find where I want to start here. So he says, verse 7, Job 29, 7. I'm going to read this, and I want you to just understand righteous governance or just governance. He says, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, that's him saying he was a governor, if you will. Not governor in the sense of we have a state governor, but he was exemplifying governance. The young men saw me and withdrew, and the age rose and stood. So he had a lot of respect. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and the tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed. So he's, everybody in the public sphere is going, this is a just governor, right? They called him blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Because, because now he's going to say why. Why did everybody look upon him and call him blessed as a governor? Because I delivered the poor who cried for help. And the fatherness who had no, none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness. The word righteousness and justice in the Bible are very similar terms. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. My glory, that's an amazing picture. My roots, so he's like the influence, spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me and my bow, my bow ever new in my hand, my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited, kept silent for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped, um, dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain. They opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence. In the light of my face, they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, I lived like a king among his troops, like, now, now this is a great statement. I chose their way and sat as chief and lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. That's a very interesting um, view of kingship. You know, as people are calling him blessed, rising up, going, this is for the good of the public environment. I just say that is, that's an incredible picture of just governance, of a public commons looking positively at governance. Doesn't get into any of the complexities of it. I get it. But the picture that's ultimately happening. Romans chapter 13 is um, the passage in the New Testament that most clearly lays out for us, um, lays out for us the, the role, biblical role of government. So let's go to that. Romans actually start in Romans chapter 12. And I want to make a series of observations and point out some things that I think are often missed in this. So Romans chapter 12. We did a little bit of this last week, and after we ended, I felt a deep need to, to do it even more. So you guys understand that when you look at your Bibles and these, these verses that are in there were written in later so it was easy for us to navigate our ways around the scriptures. You guys all know that, right? And the headings that are put in there are not inspired by God or weren't written by the 
the author, but were put in so that we can kind of categorize the sections that are in the midst of that. So what this read like is just a constant flow from the beginning of Romans to the end of Romans. So in the midst of that, this is why people that ever teach you or train you to understand the Bible would say, context is everything. You have to understand Romans chapter 13, when he speaks about the governing authorities in the context of that which goes before it and that which goes after it. So I'm gonna trust you guys to, hopefully you guys have um, some scripture sitting in front of you either electronically or not. Um, but I want, <clears throat> I think it would be really significant to read this. Now this is gonna be fairly long and I may be killing myself in regards to time here, but I wanna do something. I'm gonna read chap Romans chapter 12, verse nine, all the way through chapter 13. Now that's long, but I want you to get the thrust of the context in which this is written in. Because I think most Christians, when they go to understanding biblical governance, they go immediately to one section of Romans 13 and miss the context. And at times, it's why many people, even Christians, can have this really negative view of government. Like that, eh, it's here, and then they'll say things like, it's given only because of sin. Okay, I'm going to start with a thesis that I don't think that's biblical. I think governance is a reality with or without sin. Now, there's a role it has to employ because of sin, but I don't think government's given because of sin. So let's, let's start this. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, in the context, just give me really quick from that section, what are some big thoughts you have from that? Just kind of, wow, what is it, what's it saying? State the obvious. What's that? Be a peacemaker. Very interesting. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all man, men. Okay, I just want to use Ann Coulter's tweet once more to go, if you just applied that verse alone, you wouldn't write a tweet of, I'm glad he did this to the retard. Like, you just, w that doesn't quite help the, the dialogue of living peaceably with all men. So, keep going. What, what, what else thoughts? So, be a peacemaker. Um, love and honor everybody. Love and honor everybody. Serve others. Serve others. Hold, fast. Hold fast to what, does he say? to what is good. 
right? So these words are very interesting. I don't want to say they're entirely synonymous, but they're very synergistic, like justice, righteousness, goodness. You don't have one of those without the other. Don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay? Like a radical humility. Like a radical humility that's in, in the midst. It's so much so that you go, I'm going to associate with the lowly. I'm not going to be haughty, this radical humility. Now, let, let me just picture this, okay? Many people at this point would go, he's writing to Roman Christians. But one thing you have to understand that we believe as Christians is we don't believe this is just truth for Christians. This is truth, right? Like Jesus is the truth. So it's been said that this is public truth. Now that's an extraordinary statement. That, that phrase is used by a guy that actually served as the Bishop of Durham in London. The Bishop of Durham, the Anglican Church, sits in the House of Lords in London. And his statement that he promotes over and over and over is that this is public truth. You know, I mean, you understand how radical that statement is in a culture like ours? That saying public means for everybody. Like whether you acknowledge it or not, this is truth. Now, if that's true, and God calls us as Christians to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, meaning the grouping of people who sits in the midst of a sinful world, redeemed, showing before the world, this is what life is meant to look like. There is a God who created everything and meant the world to function like this, right? So we live like that as a community who is called to be in the world, but not of the world. That means we are meant to live in the public commons, calling the world through promoting our actions and through our proclamation to say, this is the way the world functions. Like, we know the God who made all of this. The world will function better like this. Now, let me make a statement on that very quickly. What's fascinating about government or even the real world, let's just talk about the public arena, whether it's the marketplace or it's politics. You'll even have Christians who, when you teach things like this, will come up to you afterwards and say enough to go, I like this piece of what you said, but you know ultimately what they're saying is, you're so naive. Like, you don't understand how the real world functions. You can't function like that in the marketplace. You can't do politics like that. Now, in the end, what they're fundamentally saying is, I know that you're saying the Bible says this, but really what they're saying is, but the Bible doesn't apply to the real world. Like, it's grimy, and I can't live like that. But the funny part about that thing in Romans is he's acknowledging evil. He isn't saying you're living in the happy by and by with no evil, because that's the big deal, is people are constantly going, yeah, but I live in a real world where there's evil people that are self-absorbed. He's clearly acknowledging that. And he's saying, overcome evil with good, right? And this is public truth. This will function better in a way like this. So now look at the context specifically in verse 19. So he said, do all of this. Now this is a clear acknowledgement of evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not 
be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the context of this is vengeance, that you're experiencing evil. How then should I act? He says, here's how you should act. Don't avenge yourself. Don't go after them. Leave that to God, because God is the judge. He will determine that through many ways. Many people think vengeance, God's judgment will only come at the end of time, which that's when the final judgment comes. But Romans chapter one says the wrath of God is being revealed at this very moment against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So in the end, there's a very real world opportunity now where you go, the world is not created to function like that. It will blow up at some point, one way or another, whether you know it, whether it hits the media or whether it doesn't, the wrath of God will be poured out at this given moment against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Because God is doing that, you don't have to avenge yourself. You can live the way God intends you to live, overcoming evil with good. Now he brings in, right now in that context, a whole discourse on love, how to handle evil through love, he brings in the context of submitting ourselves to the governing authorities. Chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For if he does not bear the sword, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Other versions say for nothing. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now understand contextually, one aspect of what he's saying is, I have made the world that at the heart of the universe is love. The world is meant to function according to this ethic, love. It doesn't, right? There's evil in the world. So when you incur evil, do not seek to avenge yourself, for God is pouring out his wrath. And you go, okay, that's nice, but how do I really know it? So I said to you, Romans chapter 1 says, God will be the final judge, but even now, God is pouring out his wrath in this given moment that you don't have to seek to avenge yourself. So one purpose of government is that they are an agent to ensure more so love by being one who is a minister of God's wrath and one, a minister of God, that's a big phrase, and one portion of it that he says here in Romans 13 is by carrying out the wrath of God, right? So government exists to punish wrongdoers in a just government. Now, understand this. We understand there are unrighteous governments. The Bible even speaks to that. But government, governance of any kind, I would argue the Bible would say this, governance of any kind is better than no governance at all understanding and because of understanding sin in many factors so love is is given it's meant to function like this in one way that we exist is that government 
is one means to carry out the authority that do big ideas of purpose of government, the authority of God. Gover- government doesn't entirely carry out the authority of God, but it is one mechanism in the created world that God has given to carry out his authority. Now understand this, the authority of God. What does First John say that God is? Love, right? Sometimes we get frightened by words like this, authority, and this, this tells you a lot about our culture, is many of us hear the word authority, and we, the first thing we think about is evil rather than good. That could be a huge problem of your view of government and your struggle, is that if immediately, because of maybe bad experiences, maybe it's justified on some levels because of bad experience, but biblically speaking, let me just help correct you to say, when you hear the word authority, the utmost authority in the universe is the creator, and it's God, and God is love. So authority that then God distributes to a human level, First Peter, we've just been working through this, of different authority structures, one being given by God as gov- government, being given by God, is a distributed authority of God on earth. They're called, right here, very specifically in Romans chapter 13, verse 6, authorities are ministers of God, servants of God, to carry out his authority of love, right? So, so one very specific thing in the midst of this is government is given by God. So I'm going to draw an arrow. Government is given by God fundamentally to carry out a more loving, in this context, just, good, all of these words that you used, righteous society, Okay? Now, how does it do that? Well, through two means, really simply. One is by one thing that comes very clear in this passage is through punishing the wrongdoer. Okay, that's very clear in that passage, right? Is that he's saying vengeance is not yours, government's given, government will be a minister of God carrying out his wrath in many forms and fashions through punishing the wrongdoer. That is one purpose of government. Here's the second one, and this is where, this one seems pretty obvious from the passage. This one's missed oftentimes. Many people believe government is, and many Christians believe government's only given because of sin. Okay, that's why government is fundamentally here. So they'll look at Romans chapter 13 and go, look, the whole thrust of Romans chapter 13, the whole thrust of it is about the government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. It's there to punish the wrongdoer, which I would say, yes, that's true. But in the midst of that passage, one, contextually, the whole passage is about love, right? And love is not fully distributed in a society or cultivated and developed in a society just by somebody having the sword to punish the wrongdoer. The wrongdoer, biblically speaking, is one who's going against justice. So they're exemplifying injustice or unrighteousness or a lack of goodness. So the ability to step in and punish that is essential to a loving society. But in the end, that's only one aspect. There has to be a definition, correct? In order to punish wrong, what do you have to have? A definition of what? 
good and righteousness, righteous, right? So fundamentally, you have to have a definition of this. And there's a very interesting statement tucked in the midst of this where he's saying, don't, hey, if you're doing wrong, if you're doing good, don't worry. Right? Like government is not there to punish you if you're doing good. Under God, the way God has instituted this authority, it's not meant to do that. For he is a servant of God. But look at this. This is verse, at the end of verse 3, starting verse 4. Then do what is good, for you will receive his approval. For he is, here's it said again, God's servant for your good. Okay? Now, that's a, this is the other part that I would say. Punish wrongdoing, but it's also for the cultivation. Let's say celebration would be another word. Of the good, right? Here's two terms. This one, this is retributive justice. Anybody a good dictionary? Participate with me. What's retributive mean? Go ahead. Payback, right? Retribution, payback. I'm responding to something that's evil. I'm going to punish the, the wrongdoer. There's retributive justice. But here's another one, and this, guys, this is so big, and another reason I think there's political gridlock is people don't have a view of this. There's also distributive justice. What's distributive mean? Distribution, right? So think about this for a minute. Many people would view, so in the Middle Ages, okay, the Middle Ages, so the Middle um, Ages, you had a, a Catholic church the, um, in the midst of this. They viewed, basically, you had higher callings and lower callings. The higher callings were the ministers, the priests, right? And they didn't marry. They didn't do the things of the world. So they didn't get married. They didn't have sex, you know, and, that's, they, and they didn't do the things of the world like government, right? Those were lower callings not higher callings so in the end they split people in a class right there's the higher class spiritually speaking and then there's the lower class then you had the reformation and they were still trying to wrestle with this idea and so they were trying to wrestle with living in a world of sin how do you do things that fundamentally are unrighteous like bearing the sword so then what they did is they took individual people and split them basically in two halves so there's times where you have to live out of your righteous side, but then there's times because you live in a world of sin that you live out of your unrighteous side, right? You see what I'm saying? So they, they literally split and went, okay, there's times you're living the higher life and there's times you're living the lower life. Let me just acknowledge this really quick. This is a short class, so this is gross generalizations, okay? But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a point that I think if you did research, you'd see. I don't think either of those are accurate. Or you, you have people then going on and going, governance is given because of sin, so you have kind of these two kingdom realities. There's the righteous kingdom, the unrighteous kingdom, and then they split people in half because you have to live in the midst of both of those. I would argue that the biblical teaching is far more holistic in the, than that, and it recognizes that sin's in the world. But government is not, I would argue, given because of sin. Here's one simple way we know that is if you just think of the nature of a polis, a public community, and you say things, I think we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, if you take the Garden of Eden, 
right? And in the Garden of Eden, men and women are called to dominion, right? To care, cultivate creation, steward it. A word you could easily use there if you take those Hebrew words would be govern it, right? They're meant to govern it. He says, be fruitful and multiply. So say they begin to obey the command and say that there's no sin there. And they begin to just obey this command and it goes on and on. Well, you can assume as they get creative and they create, they cultivate, they're fruitful, multiply, there's more and more people. With more and more people, they start going, how do we live amongst each other? Not because of sin, but because of complexity. And they start establishing governance. Like when you do roads, it'd be probably pretty good for people that are walking this way to rock on the right side, or everybody to always walk on the right side, or if you're in the rest of the world, the left side. But everybody knows I either walk on the left, everybody walks on the left, and everybody walks on the right, because it's not because of sin that we'd walk into each other, it's because we all live here, right? So they establish that, that's governance, that's policy, that's distributive justice. We wanna treat people just and right, which means we don't want them knocking heads. Then all of a sudden, somebody creates cars, the same type of thing. Are stoplights given because of sin? Do people, would people crash into each other because of sin? No, because they're human and they can't see through buildings that we created, right? So you need governance, distributive justice. Things like, I think, even in the Garden of Eden without sin, people still went to the bathroom, right? So they get creative and they develop sewage systems. And there's a whole bunch of people that one person going, gosh, if you clean up your defecation that way and they do it, that's stinking it up for everybody else. There's a better way to do this. That's not because of sin. That's because we're all living in the same space. And it may even lead to levels of, hey, that's not the most pleasant. That doesn't contribute to the most amount of flourishing. But that's not because of sin. So in the new heavens and new earth, when it says we're going to be living in a grand city, the new Jerusalem, people are bringing all types of things into this process. There's all types of commerce happening. If you read Isaiah and these passages that are going on, there's all types of commerce. There's, all, there's a huge polis happening. There is governance, and there's language of governance being used there. And just in case you don't know, in Romans or in Revelation 21 and 22, there's not sin. So government isn't given because of sin. So when you look at it and you go, oh, well, that's kind of just the lower order, and it's here because of evil, I guess, yeah, somebody has to do it. Let me, the problems with that is it minimizes your view of the significance and beauty of governance, authority, and leadership, all given to help establish a public commons of love. Secondly, the other thing it does, maybe unintentionally that you don't mean to do, is for all the people who feel called into the public space, you're basically poo-pooing them saying, you really have a lower calling, which I would argue the Bible says the exact opposite. I'd say it means we should stand up in moments of people working in government, working on policy, and say, thank you, because you're creating a place in a public arena where justice, righteousness, goodness, the big word love, can flourish more because of good authority and good governance than not. So biblically speaking, here are the things I want you to know. Government is given by God to create a flourishing public commons for the common good, right? Yet it lives, and our government now functions in a world where there is evil, therefore there is retributive justice function. In the context of Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13, that's what he's just mentioned at the end of 12, hence why there's an emphasis there towards retributive justice. But I would argue the only way you have retributive justice is if you have a definition of the good that you're seeking fundamentally 
um, to be about. So let's read, just so you know that it doesn't just start there, but look how it's packaged, right? Submission to authorities, for the sake of this illustration, is sandwiched between a passage on love, then he says, submission to authorities, then here's how he ends it. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So just so you know there, that's this is a really interesting thing. Anytime you sin on any level, it's anti-love. That's a really interesting thought, but that's the logic of that argument. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from the sleep. For salvation is nearer now to us <clears throat> than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So you'll see the whole context of this is not a context in which you can go, well, he's basically giving this discourse on love. And then there's this side addendum where he basically goes, and government's given to crackheads, you know, great, it's there. And then he comes right back with love. Like that just doesn't make any contextual sense. Like, oh, that's just what it's there for, just to crack heads. No, no, no. It's given for a much more artistic, beautiful cultivation of the common good, flourishing goodness, righteousness, justice, because that's the end goal of government, why we have to have retributive justice. For those who would try to impede upon that, we have to be able to punish it so that we can have a flourishing public commons. Right? Questions, thoughts, ideas? Exactly. That's exactly right. So this part in, in the new heavens and new earth, you won't have this, but you will have governance. It's distributive. That's exactly right. Yeah. And Daniel as well. And if you read the kings, there's righteous kings and unrighteous kings. Sometimes study those. What makes a righteous king righteous? And then look at, and there's prophets speaking to the powers. And at many times, not just to Israel, Israelite powers. There's woes coming upon people that aren't even the people of God. How do you have the right to woe somebody that's not the people of God, right? Like, because God's the creator of the world and this is his world, right? You ever sang the hymn, this is our father's world? This is his world. So he uses his people to speak righteousness and justice to governing authorities. Now, I have to say this and we'll probably get it, it's some of this, not because um, I'm espousing any, candidate in the midst of this, and I'm not afraid of that, but we will get at post-election how about submission to authorities, because the Bible does speak very clearly of, but what if there's not a perfect government like God has laid out here? 
How do we function in that arena? And the Bible would say very clearly, I would say two factors. One is regardless of this. So one element of this is you have to, you, you know, one of the most famous statements among, among Jesus is when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? Just so you guys know, do you know how radical that was? Like just for instance, if you could submit to yourself to a tax that almost every religious person said was an idolatrous tax, it was a tax that literally had a coin that says Caesar is Lord on it and you were giving it, acknowledging that, it's an idolatrous tax. Jesus uses that tax specifically to say, rend to Caesar what is Caesar's. That is radical at the time because basically what he's saying at that moment is that he's acknowledging now in this world there's not going to be a theonomy, like where people are just entirely representing God. Of any government in the history of the world that you would go was unjust and sick and twisted, it was the Roman government. It's that government with an idolatrous tax that he says, rend to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give the tax and give to God what is God's. And then you have a whole example in the biblical... Uh, the New Testament, including First Peter, where he says, even in the midst of unjust governments, submit yourself to this authority. And yet at the same time, participating in that public commons, seeking the common good, you have ample biblical evidence to say, and in the midst of it, you can submit while calling the powers to righteousness and justice. You can do the two of these. Now, at any point that you are unable, this is where you have things like civil disobedience or opportunities where you stand up, which is a whole nother conversation, which is a really interesting conversation in the history of the church, is at what point do you say no? Like, that's enough and that's too compromising. But that's a, that's a much longer conversation that we are to have, but those two realities are upheld in citizenship, submission and a passion for justice and a, a notion of you living that and promoting that in the midst of it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, just the idea of God being sovereign and us being responsible. Yeah, I think that's absolutely. I mean, you could apply that here in the midst of God sovereignly give government gives governments even unjust ones, Allah, that he's recognizing, right? When he stands before Pilate and he's about to be crucified, what does he say to Pilate that speaks to this government? No authority. How, how does he say it? Anybody remember? Right. Nobody gave you this authority but God. He's recognizing to the guy who's about to crucify an innocent man, you've been given this authority by God. Now, that can rattle some cages, like, why would God give this authority? But it acknowledges God has given this authority, and in some way, in his mis mysterious reality, I would argue that the Bible would speak, any governance is better than no governance at all. And I think you see it in the book of Judges, um, you know, when everybody's doing right in their own eyes, and people are sending body parts to one another, basically, in the mail, and you're going, okay, this is pure anarchy and not right that even in the midst of this, some order, even if it's unjust, you can submit to and honor. That's the, the amazing thing in the Bible. In Romans 13, you see it. In First Peter, you see it. It's not only saying submit, but honor this. Be thankful for it. Respect this authority. And yet in the midst of it, that doesn't make you a passive, let me just use this language, wimp, but that as Christians, we're supposed to live such a life that's calling all people, including the public arena, the public governance officials, to righteousness and justice. But yes, I think that's true. There's a sovereignty of God and a responsibility in the midst of this. I, I guess you could say uh, Jesus submitted to the government and that brought about the redemption of the world. And that's kind of yeah. a crazy thing to think about. A 
especially the government he did submit himself to. That's really crazy, you know? So rendeth Caesar what is Caesar's, like, no, so he's in the midst of this, and then stands before Pilate and knows, I'm submitting myself to a government that's going to crucify me, and in so doing, I'm going to bring about the redemption of the world, which, just so you know this, even in First Peter, what we dealt with this past week on wives understanding authority structures, even in the midst of the home, even if there's an unjust family structure and an unjust husband, he's saying, Listen, wives, live in such a way that even in the midst of his injustice, you promote this gospel reality, this trust in God so much that you can win him over, okay? So let me just make a statement on that because it's the same logic applied all the way through, that there is a reality of Christians, and you see this throughout the history of the world, living in such a way in the midst and under unrighteous oppression that literally begins to change nations, literally change nations on the basis of how these people are living. China's even one of them. I mean, I had an opportunity to study and go there, and these people will talk about the way in which people lived literally began to change entire environments. I think Christians dealing with topics like slavery have changed things in particular over a period of time. It doesn't promise it. The Bible doesn't promise that, but there is a, a way to say you live in such a way in submission it's submissively hum in, in humility and prophetically that can change entire arenas, which also should give you hope um, in, the, in the midst of this. So it, it is fascinating. And I say that off of that, of him submitting himself to, to government brought about the flourishing of the entire, the salvation of the world, right? And then it says to us, be imitators of God, live like Jesus, that we can live in such a way, even amongst unjust structures, that we too can contribute more to the flourishing by overcoming evil with good than trying to go, I'm going to do evil for evil. Any other thoughts, ideas? Sean. Politicians are grimy, dirty, you know, that kind of, now, I'm not saying there isn't massive amounts of corruption, massive amounts in the midst of all of this, but biblically speaking as a Christian, that should never, ever, ever come off your lips. Honor, respect, prayer. First Timothy 2, 2, pray for those in authority, right? When's he writing that? Who's an authority in the midst of, I mean, the biblical writings are not written in a time where you go, there is this amazing government that we can honor, that we can respect, that we can pray for. The counter, it, it's the polar opposite of that. And so as Christians, there's a reality in which I can speak honor and yet speak prophetically. I don't think this is just. I don't think this governance structure is just. I don't think, so, so don't, convicted civility. Civility is the honor, the respect, the prayer. Conviction is the prophetic side. 
you have the ability. It doesn't mean, when I'm saying honor and respect, that doesn't mean you sit back and go, everything's kosher, you know? That I'm saying peace, peace when there is no peace, right? Like there is both of those realities that you have to uphold um, in a world of living in the midst of this. So let's do this. Um, I want to take the last 30 minutes and talk specifically. We have two weeks and we won't meet again until post-election. I want to talk about voting, okay? And I want to, I want to hear you guys just talk. I don't really even give much guidance, but I'd love to hear you talk about your questions, concerns, and even convictions on what is guiding you in your voting. How do you determine who you vote for, why you vote, does this vote matter? And I just, anybody that wants to talk, you can pose a question, you can pose a thought, an idea. I'd just like to create a civil, convicted civil discussion about voting. Let me ask you this question. Um, uh, guys, again, each one of these could be an entire night, that question alone. I mean, a lot of people don't understand the nature of the Electoral College. They don't understand um, these types of things. But let me ask you a question. Why do you think there's such an emphasis on both party sides to get out the vote if vote doesn't matter? From what you've, or anybody in the midst of this that feels competent in a paragraph form, can somebody explain the Electoral College? Can you guys all hear this? Arizona, you're voting in one of 
I, I, this is not mastery, okay? We're developing discernment. So do you, guys, do you guys all get the general idea of electoral college, whether or not your convictions on is it just or is it not just? That's, that's a conversation that would be interesting for us to gather and have of justice, if that's the goal of governance. Electoral college, or even the United States system, is nowhere to be found in the Bible, okay? So like when people want to ask, what type of government is promoted in the scriptures? There isn't one, right? Like the type of the governing structure. Now there's an incredible amount of wisdom. There's an incredible amount of thought that have go, gone into different, different governing structures. But what God does care about, which I think is this incredible statement by God, is that authority is given by God and in his call to humanity to have dominion, to care, cultivate, and create. He gives us the freedom to use our creativity, our minds, guided ideally as Christians by biblical truth, that if, and if this is public truth, hopefully it really affects the entire world, to use our creativity, guided by biblical truth, to develop systems to govern the public commons. Okay, so in that, I just wanna make a statement that when we talk about electoral college, this could be a topic of conversation that raises to say, is this the most just way at this given moment to participate? But it is what we participate in. That's where I wanna go back to. All you guys kinda understand the electoral college? Anybody else wanna just speak to that for a minute on voting, feeling like your vote counts in an electoral college system? Let me make a, a quick statement on that because of, for time. And again, I wanna emphasize the development of discernment. So I'm not trying to win an argument here, okay? I'm trying to cultivate discernment. Is I do wonder at times with the conversation on electoral college, um, I ask the justice questions. Is this the most just way or should it be just overall populist representation? Because there, you guys know this from recent elections. There's the potential that you could win the electoral vote and lose the popular vote. There's a possibility of that happening. And you have to ask, is that just? But I do wonder, wonder on this is if our passion and desire for our vote to count speaks a little to the individualism of saying, I want my vote to count as one vote in the midst of this, rather than I'm a part of a community. And in this governing structure, my community is represented by the state of Arizona, that in this collective environment of the United States of America has to be represented by this amount of post points because the way it was originally developed is they felt like this was a more just way to govern is that each state based upon population should be given certain electoral points, if you will, um, in the midst of understanding to really represent a just electoral process. You could disagree with that. What I'm putting forth is, is our desire for our one vote to count more of an indicator 
of our individualism, wanting our full vote to count, or is it really a question of justice? That would be one, as we develop discernment, that we should ask um, in the midst of this, or is justice better represented by this idea? So go back to voting. Any other thoughts or things that are guiding you? Uh, Yeah. So just, I, I just want to kind of concisely say what the dilemma that's presented there is who selects the vice president candidate? The president, the president for the most part, right? With obviously his party and whatever, but it, it isn't the people, that's for sure. And yet if the president dies, who takes over the presidency? The vice president. So what they were saying is that's a very interesting conversation. Let me just insert, not trying to go that any further with that. Guys, I'm, I, I am, this is, uh, without sounding desperate, this is a plea of conversations like this are not worthless conversations. You're citizens that participate in a public environment and should be having discussions. So when you hear me in a few minutes here lay out a few guidelines that won't sound like typical probably guidelines that you've heard, this is one component of this is you, you can't finish this election and go, okay, I'm done with that one and never start thinking about this again for two years maybe if you're in our categories, a good citizen. And for most of us, four years before you, you can't do that. Like citizenship demands that you are a participant in this public commons. You should be having conversations like this. Yeah. 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 No, no. So, so I think something that comes out of this to think about in regards to voting is a huge statement. You know, when she said there is maybe writing letters is more significant than my vote. This is a really interesting thought of being a citizen is way more than just voting. But what, I, what now, I'm gonna give you my conviction here. I don't think it's less than voting. Now you may understand in this process, my vote isn't even a full vote. It, depending upon what state I li live in, it may be like a percentage of a vote in the overall deal, but it's a piece of the thing. If I view it as the only thing, I could get maybe far more discouraged 
right? But most people, if, they're, if they feel like I'm participating in the public process, all they view like that is, that their view is, is I participated by voting and that was it. So a huge part of what I'm saying here is it's being a citizen, I think informed by biblical values, is more than just voting. I would argue not less than, but, but more. And if you don't vote, all I would say to you is you need to have a biblically informed reason that, re, that re, reflects justice of reasons why you wouldn't. And, and there are people who do have those, right? There really are, and I think need uh, to have wider um, conversations regarding this. Frank. Which candidate is going to steward our resources best? So um, I'm, I'm not a one-issue voter, unless you call the stewardship of everything one issue. But um, you know, we, we, we are a very resource-rich country, including our justice. Uh, and so whatever resources we have, why in your mind is one issue voting not comprehensive, in your mind's not sufficient? I was gonna say wrong, but not sufficient sounds more tempered, more civil. Which direction? <laughs> Take a while, yeah. <laughs> I say that because in a, in a, in a yeah, Christian no. in a Christian environment, they'd presume it's the Christian way, which no, it's, there's it's, a whole lot of people that are voting the other way. way so. That's not the only one. Um, uh, tax cuts or tax increases uh, would be a one, either way, would be a one-issue voter. Uh, stewarding our resources is a lot more than just taxes and how we're going to handle uh, either the redistribution Because I, I, I do know people who are, who are one, one issue voters and say, I, I can't like this, we 
Yeah. Let, let me say something on that really quick because I really, we have five minutes. I want to honor your time. No, no, don't be sorry. We were bringing this up to everybody, but I, let me start by saying Romans is very clear that anything that is not done in faith is sin. So if you're sitting right now and you have a conviction like that, you're a one-issue voter and you're going, I would go against my conscience if I voted for this person. I think the Bible's really clear and you have a right to vote like that. You do have a right like that. I think what I would bring to the party like anyone would is your consciences. So in the Bible, conscience is spoken of that at times there's weak consciences even in Christians, and there's stronger consciences in, in Christians. Part of cultivating discernment is to say, maybe, right, maybe one issue voting is legitimately just. Maybe it's a conscious issue. Maybe there's a reality in which you can think about civilly the complexity of a system, a la maybe this issue as the times that we're living in right now that may guide your vote. You go, this issue is never gonna be addressed in the next four years. Like there is no chance this, this issue is gonna be addressed on any substantial level that's gonna affect policy to the point of shaping an entire construct that in the end, this is a worthy reality for me to be a one issue voter on. Let alone the fact, so time, you're gonna, you're gonna hear this in a minute, time is a, a huge component to understand the complexity. Also just good governance overall, even if there's an aspect of injustice in the midst of this, if I have a right to contribute to overall good governance, if, if, and even at times where you may say it's the lesser of two evils, which you hear all the time in politics, there's at least the process a thoughtful Christian goes through to look at what in the end, you could say it negatively, is the lesser of two evils, or maybe I would say a more biblical way to say it is the better of two options for the sake of the governance in this given environment, and, and timing being huge. In order to honor our time, let me give you um, a few that'll help hopefully cultivate a little um, discernment in regards to this. So let me get my notes here. Um, <clears throat> so I am gonna give you five guidelines. They aren't the only guideline, right? But here's why I'm giving you these guidelines, is many times in Christian environments, they're going to give you guidelines that are like this. Here's two certain guidelines. Abortion. Uh, that might be another one. <laughs> right? Abo abortion, homosexual marriage. You know, so... Um, is it, would there be another one? So they would, but, but they would go, these are the huge policy issues that Christians should care about, right? Now there's a whole other side of Christianity that would write another level, depending upon which side you sit on, that would speak about the poor and their view of how the poor should be dealt with, that would deal with immigration, that would deal with all these kinds of things. But, but traditionally, in especially our types of churches that would be more conservative, you'd hear guidelines like this. Now hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that's wrong. I mean, just so you know, I believe very clearly the Bible is pro-life, not pro-choice. I believe that as a deep level conviction we could talk about it sometime. I believe fundamentally this is a substantial issue for the common good, not just for a Christian going, I, I disagree with, I'm sorry, I think the redefinition of marriage, just so you understand, is a substantial issue. These are not the guidelines I'm going to give you. I'm not telling, you have to think through policy. Okay, you have to think through policy. Here's five guidelines. 
in the next two minutes. Um, <clears throat> I would argue one should vote when it means choosing the best of two options, or if you prefer the lesser of two evils. But the act itself, now hear me on this, the act itself, which we've gotten to, um, does not mean too much unless the voter, you, is becoming more and more mature each year in discerning the criteria by which the judgment is made. Here's what I'm saying on that as a guideline. If all you're doing is going, I'm participating by voting and I never think about it again, there's a substantial time where I look at this and go, I wish that person wouldn't vote. Like that person shouldn't vote. Now that sounds un-American at a lot of level, but voting is a part of citizenship. And if you're unwilling to participate as a citizen, which pieces of that is you becoming more and more mature in your knowledge of the system that you're participating in and the life and times in which you live, your one vote really in the end doesn't matter that much, really. One guideline, the next one. Um, one should really find ways to discuss with others the meaning of the criteria that you're choosing for voting. So you should begin to discuss this with people, have other people speak into this, because this is a public community. You're not just an individual with your own individual decisions. Your decisions affect the public commons. We're talking about the common good, not just your individual good, which I would say your individual good is built up into that. So one should find ways to discuss with others the meaning of those criteria in which you're choosing to vote and the nature of the offices the candidates will fill. Okay, this is huge. You should talk about the nature of the offices the candidates will fill. For instance, choosing a pro-life candidate for the county executive, right? If that's your one issue, you're going, I gotta pick a pro-life guy for county executive. That's kind of misguided because the county executive has virtually nothing to say about pro-life policy, right? They don't, they have virtually nothing to say. So what's the office I'm voting for at this moment and how will they be a good governance? So if it's the county executive, he or she should be qualified to make sound public justice questions and decisions regarding roads, land use, parks, etc. That's their role, that's the position they fill in governance. The next thing, number three, maturing, your maturing, which we said in, in, in number one, can come about only, only as a Christian, if Christians learn to discuss and debate with one another year by year. Now hear this, this is what I'm trying to create when I send out that board as you guys go around. Can learn to communicate, debate one another year by year at regular intervals, not just in election seasons, at regular intervals based upon good re reading, enhanced education than you had before regarding about what's going on right now. Citizens need to gain a multi-issue perspective on the responsibilities of, what are the responsibilities from a multi-dimension perspective, which is why gathering in a group of people that aren't just like you, but over, will give you a multi-dimensional perspective of these roles of executives, legislators, judges, as well as the local, state, and national offices and issues. And they must be gaining, we must be gaining a deeper understanding of the nature of a political community. That's why I've said political community, public commons, the polis, eight bazillion times. Because if we don't have a vision for that, we're never going to be good in engaging in this uh, political process. And what is required to be, as you begin to learn that, you start asking yourself questions. What really is, 
required to be just in both distributive and retributive senses of justice. You have to ask yourself those questions. This means learning to think in terms of, I know this is a lot, guys, but learning to think in terms of institutions, offices, and office holders. What's the role of that institution? How should the government treat business? How should the government treat family? How should the, because the family's not government, right? I think this is a huge part of us distinguishing differences in discernment. Number four, in any given election, we should try to size up the times in which we live. We were just talking about this a minute ago. What are the times in which we live? Today, for example, okay, what the most crucial issues are could be up for debate, but let me submit to you just some thought to develop a little discernment. For example, the most crucial issues of today are likely to be dealt with or have a big impact in the next four years. What are those? In the next, this is all about time, in the next four years, what are those issues? So here's some ones that easily could be. Healthcare policy, taxes, deficit spending, foreign policy, particularly in diplomacy and economic policy, immigration, energy and environment, family. Um, those are all substantial issues in the next four years that you go, those legitimately could have uh, big inroads. So, and then you have to ask other questions. What are the big issues that are big issues? I'm not saying they're minor issues that you go really in the next four years may not be as big of a deal. You have to have conversation in order to determine that. Not everybody's gonna agree with that. I'm not certain entirely what some of them are. I'm very certain other ones are right at that. Like you could not say in the next four years, healthcare is not gonna be, I mean, that's like wham, right in your face that you know that's a big issue. Um, so you need to think through that. Last one, after the election, I've said this enough that I, I can just read it and not explain it. After the election, you, me, one should not retreat into the closet giving thanks that voting won't have to be faced for another two to four years. Instead, we should continue to talk about how these elected officials are doing in their offices to establish public justice, about their competence for the role. We should continue to be talking about it. And all the time, the criteria of judgment need to be clarified. Hear this from a Christian biblical perspective because we're Christians. Okay, so five issues. If you have your email on that list, I'll send those out to you. Um, you guys can get them in, in more detail. So we are five minutes over time. So I'm going to finish. Uh, we do not meet. We will not meet next week or the following week. So we don't meet Halloween. Is that? Right. We don't meet Halloween. We don't meet Halloween. We don't meet on the 7th. And we, we don't meet on the 7th, which is the day after the election. We will meet on the 14th. So um, we'll talk about it. Hopefully you guys can write that in your calendar. Um, that last one will be very interesting to see the countenance of your faces. You'll give away who you wanted to win in the 14th. We'll see it. So. <laughs> God, we uh, thank you for this. Thanks that your word speaks to all of life, that this is public truth. Um, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, our lives could align with it, um, specifically that overall the clear theme we got from your word today is that we are called to be those who love you with everything we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. God, let us be those who overcome evil with good. In Christ's name, amen. All right, see you later. Thanks to whoever brought the food, by the way. Yeah. Yeah.